My extra special guest today is Andrew Wilkie. He is a board director at Touch Associates, the architects of engagement, who run campaigns for the likes of Ford, Mercedes-Benz, FMCG brands and financial services brands, just go down the list. He started his career when advertising was still advertising, not this watered down version that we have today. He started in the industry in 1989 when the Berlin Wall first came down and worked at the legendary Saatchi and Saatchi when really it felt like nothing was impossible when it came to creativity. You were only limited by your creative imagination. This is just a masterclass on branding, finding a brand's place in the world, diversification due to covid the evolution of live events in lockdowns, the importance of bravery to create truly great creative work. We didn't talk about his beloved Brighton Hove Albion, even though he wanted us to. I kind of sidestepped that conversation because they'd recently beat my team, Aston Villa, which I wasn't too happy about. This was just such a great conversation from someone who's seen it all and done it all when it comes to creating great creative work. It was just such a, a pleasure speaking to him. Such a down-to-earth, funny, charming guy. He promised that he would invite me to the Amex Stadium the next time that Brighton played Villa. I'm not sure whether I'm going to do that, depending on how how well Villa were playing at the time. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Andrew Wilkie. My special guest today is Andrew Wilkie. He is a board director at Touch Associates. He spent around 20 years at Saatchi and Saatchi and became managing director at Gum, the branded content division, creating some breathtaking films, TV documentaries, events and music. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Andrew Wilkie, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Nathan, thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. I've really been looking forward to speaking to you for a very long time now. You've worked at some of the most prestigious agencies of the last, I want to say, 40, 50 years. Uh, you were at Saatchi and Saatchi for around 30 years. Tell us the story of how you got into the industry and how you first fell in love with advertising. Oh, uh, Nathan, you're aging me, uh, which is a <laughs> difficult thing. So I was at Saatchi's for just under 20, as it happens. But, um, but uh, nevertheless... Still a, uh, a monumental period of time and one I reflect on very, very fondly. So, so to answer your question, how I got into the industry, I was a classic student sitting in a cold Newcastle flat one afternoon, not wondering what to do with my life when um, on came uh, a piece of communication on the telly that completely and utterly um, focused my mind on something that would actively interest me. Uh, and that was an ad by... Um, BMP for The Guardian uh, called Points of View, which was one of those seminal bits of advertising depicting a a story about a skinhead who effectively is saving a businessman from a disaster. But from different perspectives, you see different stories. And it was one of those one of those bits of communication that made me think, do you know something? There's there's something really interesting about that particular form of engagement that it uh, that made me want to explore more. And from from that point onwards, advertising was really where I wanted to go. Really fascinating. You joined Saatchi at the end of 89 and spent two decades there, as you, as you said. The Berlin Wall had just fallen and you were a graduate intern at the time. Uh, and your first in your first week, two memos came across your desk at Saatchi. Uh, one of them was first over the wall. 
Explain. Yeah, um, and again, this is going to age me, but this was the day when um, the lads in dispatch used to send round internal memos and come round in shopping baskets with memos that were literally stacked sort of 100 deep and leave a, uh, an internal memorandum on, on your desk. And one of the first ones that was a sort of an agency-wide piece of communication I received, which was this picture of a piece of advertising or a piece of communication on the east side of the Berlin Wall, which just said, Saatchi and Saatchi, first over the wall. Now, bearing in mind, this was about September 89, and the Berlin Wall came down, I think, in November. This was a classic piece of, of Saatchi communication where... There was an opportunity, there was a uh, a moment in time that could be grabbed for an appropriate piece of messaging, powerful, really, really clear, really simple. That just And I remember reading it thinking, oh my God, this is the kind of potential that exists within this organization. And uh, this is why I wanted to be in the industry. Uh, and this is why I wanted to be part of this particular company, because... Um, you know, you there's company cultures that you can you can um, buy into, uh, and realize that organisations don't necessarily live up to the full potential of it. And then there are cultures where everybody absolutely lives and breathes that, and and nothing is impossible was absolutely reflected in the notion of that particular memo, Saatchi and Saatchi first over the wall. It was a beautiful, beautiful evocation of everything that the agency stood for uh, and what they expected of everybody who worked there. So what was it that made Saatchi and Saatchi so iconic and special? From the outside, they've got one of those names that is just legendary in the world of advertising and, and media. What was it about the culture at Saatchi, about the way that they operated, about the client work that they delivered on that built that reputation and that foundation oh if you could literally capture that essence in a bottle and flog it you'd be a very very rich individual <laughs> i think um i think there are there are three particular aspects of 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 sarchiness that i think were vital for its growth but i said i personally it's from a personal perspective i think precision was was the key thing that you know the hugely bright um ambitious organization full of bright and ambitious people that were trying constantly to get to uh a different way of looking at the world so that precision was was vital i think then a passion to then make that that interrogation that precision work in terms of uh, having the delivering against the key objectives for for the client, and then a relentless, relentless pursuit of perfection in every single little bit of attention to detail in terms of making sure that the product that was created by the agency lived up to its full potential. And the process of creating any form of communication is marred by a huge number of pitfalls along the way. And if you let any one of those get in the way, then then the overall effect of a piece of engagement is is reduced. And the more uh, you are concerned about that level of attention to detail, about that precision, the better the product will be at the end of the day. That relentlessness absolutely drove everybody in, in the business. 
to a point where there was a ridiculous, a ridiculous amount of healthy competitiveness in terms of constantly trying to better what had happened before. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about today was brand and the importance of brand, and especially in, in the world that is uh, where we're so inundated with messages, right, left and centre, we're in this digital world. The importance of brand to fall back on from the perspective of trust and, and building of credibility is probably even more important now when our attention and time is uh, at a premium. What was Saatchi's approach to storytelling? Because that's such a fundamental part of building brands. And how did they tell stories for their clients in a way that helped them build effective brands? There is a myth about advertising in that um, you can say advertising can come up with a wonderful way of overselling a product or overpromising. And do you know what? Consumers and customers won't allow that to happen. But what you've got to do is, is get to the truth. You've got to interrogate the product to get to what is the fundamental truth about this product what service is it going to provide? What benefit is it going to provide to the customer? And then how do you capture that story, that narrative, and and amplify it? And there is an amplification there, both in terms of the levels of entertainment and how you capture someone's attention and imagination. But how do you amplify that story to then make it compelling, want, make people want to watch it, make people want to believe in it, and then go and take the appropriate action? And And... The reason why I think Saatchi was so great at producing such a lot of seminal bits of communication was because there was a, uh, a, 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 a forensic adherence to that principle. And uh, once you got to the heart of the product, how do you then get to a point where you amplify it, where you springboard that into the most compelling way of telling that story that is true to the product and true to the idea of of you know entertainment engagement and getting to getting people to a point of emotional connectivity with that promise really fascinating you had some amazing early mentors as well paul arden and dave droger who then went on to set up droger 5 at different points in your career what did you take away from such iconic amazing people in, in media and advertising and how did their philosophies sort of impact the way that you think about creativity and advertising today oh love it two very very different characters but two characters who were driven by uh the, a, a very very similar purpose and a, and a very very similar goal um irrespective of what department you were in within that organization those two characters at their particular points in time, and they were sort of six years apart. Um, so my first four years, if you like, was was under was where Paul Arden was creative director, and then there was a sort of six year gap, and then there was another four years where where Dave Droger was was creative director. But um, they were uh, both completely driven by the creative product, by getting to a point where you would tell. Uh, the most persuasive story in the most persuasive, entertaining way, and 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 for Paul, um, I remember asking him what he thought was the essence of great creativity, or what made, or what he what he wanted from 
from clients in terms of and what he wanted from everybody works in the agency in terms of the pursuit of the great creative product and and he said just be brave be brave be brave there was always a recognition that if you were and this was another Saatchi mantra if you were gonna if you were gonna um, create a brilliant piece of communication it had to be relevant it had to, absolutely had to be on brand on brief and uh, and on the objectives but it had to be unexpected and the minute you go into any kind of unexpected territory you are breaking habit you're asking people to think about things in a different way and that requires a certain bravery in terms of the nature of the way that you take that product from outside of the agency and go and present it to the client and it also requires and we have to recognize this a degree of bravery from the client in terms of buying it and that that will only happen if if you have a a a degree of trust um you know that the, the 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 trust and the partnership has to be absolutely solid between everybody in the agency and then going out to the outside world and that connectivity is i think is is absolutely vital in terms of making sure that you go from something which is a germ of an idea into something which is a brilliant product that has an opportunity to really fundamentally change the way people think about things, the way they think about products, and the way they 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 embrace and engage with brands. Has that bravery been lost though? Because I had a conversation the other day with Patrick Collister, who is a, a senior executive at, at Ogilvy many years ago, and, and he says that actually that inherent risk-taking that's needed to create great creative and advertising has been lost because now we rely too much on data. Is there a business case for this ad? Is there a business case for this idea? And if there isn't, then that idea dies a, a death. So to a certain extent, we've sort of over-engineered advertising and communication now because we have to have, have the data to sort of back up whether or not it's a good idea. But that's not where good ideas come from. It comes from that risk-taking, that intuitive sense that, hey, this is, uh, this is a really good idea for us. Has that art of creating great advertising and creative been lost because we're over-engineering it with data? Oh, that's a very contentious question, isn't it? And I, and I understand absolutely, uh, and who am I to disagree with Patrick Collister? But he, he's right. Um, there is uh, a world out there now where um, everything can be assessed, everything can be judged by data. Does that mean that the data that is collected and the references something in the past is absolutely relevant for something that has yet to actually appear in the future and the effect that that might have. You can monitor how that, that might happen. But in terms of the bravery required to take a leap, yes, I, I think there's, you know, in this day and age where um, people's mistakes can be magnified beyond their uh, beyond arguably the, their significance, uh, where things matter so much and can be inflated to enormous proportion, then obviously there's going to be there's going to be a concern, and I recognise that. But bravery still has to be at the heart of the decision making process. And, and let me use one example, and it's not particularly current, maybe one two years ago, but it's the one that instantly springs to mind. When KFC ran out of chicken. Uh, and they couldn't get the chicken distributed around the country, and they immediately came up with a piece of ad, which a piece of advertising, which is an apology. And what they did was 
they changed the the letters KFC into FCK and came out with a brilliant ad, which was about we have fucked up, right? That that we, would we that, have what? Sorry, I, I well, didn't, I didn't. the FCK clearly was about we've created. <laughs> oops, oops, there's been an issue, right? Um, yeah, oh, forgive sorry. me, I don't know his or her name. But I take my hat off to the marketing director at that particular point in time. That was a brand that was behaving very quickly and arguably, well, not arguably at all, irrefutably, in a very, very brave way, directly to address a situation that they had created that was a problem that they knew they could do nothing about other than direct it head on. And of course, they could have they could have done a very very polite response, which was, or they could have ignored it, and they could have just tried to carry. It. But they had to close loads and loads and loads and loads of shops simply because because they changed the distribution network that was actually that was actually supplying all the chicken to their their outlets. And um, part in the transition to a different distributor, uh, the whole thing collapsed, and they lost days of of uh, of um, sales because they couldn't get the chicken supplied to the to the outlets and they responded by doing something that was extraordinarily brave and as a result of that not only did they get a very rapid then uptake post the trauma um, but they actually got huge amounts of positive brand connectivity mm. that was monitored as a direct result of that now they could have shrunk and said nothing or tried to be very polite about the way they would do or they could have addressed the issue head-on and that bravery actually then works in terms of business so that's essentially where um I think that that particular story is a shining example, but in this day and age, it's a rare one. So I recognise that, and and it's it's a brave woman or a brave man that takes that decision to to do something that is unbelievably honest uh, to address an issue that they currently face. Let's talk a little bit about your time at. Sachi and Sachi. In 2003, you set up Sachi's content division called GUM to get clients to understand the value of content. It took brand communication into the entertainment space. GUM created films, TV, documentaries, events, and music releases, enabling brands to engage with their audiences on a wider, more relevant platform. That's something that you really now, actually, a lot of brands and agencies do that quite a lot now but you were really early to that at the time talk about that um yeah that was 2003 2004 with a uh, great great thinker another great great thinker at Sarchi's um called Lee Daly who uh, was the other sort of co-founder with me in terms of and he was the group CEO at Sarchi's at the time and he'd seen what we'd been doing with um, a brand called Sagachiba where we literally had come up with uh, a proposition for the brand based around the pure spirit of Brazil, where we could take aspects of Brazil, relate them to the brand, and then take them to whole different platforms in terms of the promotion of the product through the attractiveness, the essential attractiveness of the country that it comes from, and the the embodiment of the pure spirit of that country in this in this alcoholic spirit. Um, and and Lee had been mulling around for ages with this idea that that, that with what with the upcoming fragmentation of media, with the increase in um, the rapid rise of MySpace and and YouTube and all that which was going to come down the line, that brands could actually start and should start to engage um, in different ways that are more relevant to people's lives. Um, and what we did at Gum was we we looked at creating 
um, engagements that were experiences, that were activities, that were sponsorship programs that that took it out of the 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 limited the, the space of of traditional advertising and actually started to engage with audiences on on wider platforms that arguably would would, would have more meaning for their lives and be less intrusive, be be more uh, form part of the fabric of what they were doing with their lives, how they were living their lives, and how brands could engage within part of that fabric rather than an ad break or a or a or a poster or a or a piece of communication on radio, etc. Mm, really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about brand and and advertising. What what's the purpose of creating a brand story for an established brand? with a legacy versus a startup? Because I'd be really interested to understand how you actually create that story because an established brand has legacy and uh, history that comes with it versus a startup that doesn't have any of that stuff but needs to find its space in a crowded, competitive marketplace. What's the process of creating a brand for either one of those types of organisations? I think the start point is relatively similar for both. If you're thinking about a new story for that particular product, whether it be a new or whether it be an existing one, is its reason for being. Uh, What is its reasons for being and how at that particular point in time is it relevant for the audience that it's trying to engage with? Um, Clearly, if a brand has a legacy, that legacy cannot be ignored. but, But relevant bits of that legacy can be reworked in a way that makes it relevant to the context and the situation now. Clearly, great brands have built a, a foundation of trust, of meaning, of credibility that extends, um, that's the added value, that extends beyond the simple service or product it provides. It actually starts to have meaning within people's lives. And if you have that, then that's something that is is brilliant to be able to draw upon. If you don't have that with a new brand, you still have a reason for being. The product has to have a reason for being, otherwise it's otherwise it's going to fail. It has to have a credible reason for being in a way that it's actually going to engage with its audience and, and have and provide that 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 meaning for its existence. And it then becomes how do you then identify the areas within each of those stories, within each of those two contexts, in terms of making the thing come alive in terms of uh, of engagement potential how do you create the emotional connectivity because it's not just about rational understanding this brand exists because it's going to clean something you know it, it cleans something faster and it's not just an an, an er word um it, it's it's got to be a word that that or not, or not a word it's got to be a a narrative that provides a greater sense of of meaning and a reason for connectivity, and I and I think, um, irrespective of your start point, your ultimate objective is to do this is to do the same thing. You just draw upon different references. The reason for being for both for the product, uh, either part of those stories is is something that needs to be. So, what's the reason for being for chocolate, for instance? Let's take um, Cadbury's chocolate cream eggs. Essentially, what we're doing is we're selling you know sugar chocolate cocoa beans it's a commodity that pretty much anyone can do how are brands like Cadbury's making hundreds of millions from selling what is effectively cocoa and sugar um, and packaging that 
to us? What is their reason? What is that reason for being? What is their reason for existence in the world? And how was that created? Because really, that's the difference between creating a commodity that is sold for nothing and creating multi-billion pound powerful brands like Cadbury's. Uh, okay. I, I think, listen, and again, forgive me, I'm going to, I'm going to fall back on legacy, right? Which is part of the, the, the question. And I, and I want to, I want to cast your mind back to, because the Capri's example is a great one, you know, um, the rational understanding as to why you should buy a bar of Capri's milk chocolate as opposed to anybody else's was because there was a glass and a half in every bar, right? In terms of the nature of milk, the nature of the way the milk chocolate worked in terms of, a very rational point of difference was precisely that promise. But if you think about the way that that narrative was expressed in terms of what chocolate can do for you and the benefit to you as a consumer of that chocolate was best expressed in the, in, I think, in the, in the gorilla ad, which was how on earth do you get from a bar of chocolate to a gorilla that's playing a drum kit to a Phil Collins soundtrack, right? Uh, it, the, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you get that. You get that connectivity immediately because what you're trying to go beyond is the glass, is the glass and a half. What you're doing is 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 amplifying the way you feel, the sensation of eating that bar of chocolate. What it makes you feel of the of the 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 physiological effect, the benefit of that of that chocolate experience. That whether it be and again in this era of concern about sugar, obesity, etc. Clearly, you know, you've got to take on, we have to reference all, we have to understand all those things in terms of background. Mm. Um, but at that particular point in time, in terms of that narrative, if we're specifically addressing that, both in terms of, and this is again, linked to all sorts of parts of the story that we've been talking about this morning, bravery, the nature of narrative, the nature of credibility, the nature of product truth, that how you actually then think about all of those things within the context of a narrative to come up with something that is emotionally engaging and is going to cut through. And I remember watching that ad for the first time in a cinema and thinking, hmm. wow, and that's what I loved about hmm. advertising. That's what I love about communication. When you've got something which is a narrative crystallized into a brilliant thought amplified through a fantastic piece of, 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 of communication and execution that just makes you stop in your tracks and think, oh my God, that's outstanding. That's, that's the buzz, I think, that we all crave. That's the physiological effect we crave, actually, in terms of the nature of the creative process of this business, because the two are not dissimilar. You know, that we, everyone talks about about physiological reactions of the hairs on the back of your neck when you read a decent script when you watch a decent piece of communication when when you participate in a great experience you are moved you are moved you are not the same person going into the experience as you are coming out of it and when you get engagement and when you get communication that makes you think and feel like that then, then that is you have you have done your job. You have done your job. And great advertising, just like great music, um, you know, great bits. Of, again, forgive me. Again, this may well be uh, the nerd in me coming up, but but great bits <laughs> of communication make you feel like that. They excite you yeah. to that point, and it's mm -hmm. that level of excitement that you're always looking for in terms of the creation of a product. What can we do? How can we express? the benefit of this brand in a way that's likely to engage and generate some kind of reaction like this. 
however small or big, whatever, that's we need to look at the potential for it to it's it, to deliver something like that. Really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Touch Associates. In 2018, you were asked to join Touch, who call themselves the architects of engagement. What does that mean in terms of the output that they deliver to their clients? And tell us a little bit more about the agency. Okay, so the agency started as a very successful events management company, um, putting on events for a, a whole host of principally sort of pharmaceutical and, and, and healthcare clients. Um, and there was a recognition amongst the board that existed at that particular point in time that what they needed to do, I think, was to was to add to that skill set, that core competence, an ability to tell the brand stories to get not only to build events, uh, whether it be all of the logistics elements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to create events, but to then generate and create the content that went into those events that could engage people in that way. So the architect's engagement literally is exactly what it sounds like. It's making sure that you are an expert in all stages of the event process from the the means of getting people to the event, the logistics involved in all of that, in hosting and identifying the right venues, et cetera, et cetera, and then to making sure that you actually create the right narratives that, that and 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 encourage the right stories that are happening at that at that at that event that that create the right kind of effect that the client is looking for in, in terms of their objectives. The phrase architects of engagement then reflects that, reflects the fact that there are multiple stages just as there are in any other communication campaign, to be fair. But there are multiple stages, uh, and some, and with regard to events, they are many and more varied in terms of the mate, how you get people to a venue, et cetera, et cetera, how you actually make sure that they've all got hotel rooms to stay in, et cetera. You know, right, all the logistics right up to the nature of uh, agenda construction, the, the staging of the event itself, and then the stories that are told. So architects of engagement was, was a phrase that attempted to capture all those different stages and express expertise in all of those areas because they're all equally vital. Really interesting. So so you talk about the importance of events uh, in 2020. Not many people have been doing physical events uh, because of a certain pandemic. Now, there's there's a lot of virtual events happening right now. How are you differentiating yours to make sure that you are enhancing that experience and really creating engaging virtual events for your clients? That's a great question because um, there are a number of words uh, that will be directly associated with the year 2020. Some of them will be relatively colourful. Uh, other <laughs> others will be will be more will be more specific to sectors. And, right. and the word pivot is is is, a, is an overused. And um, if anyone's playing, you know, marketing B word whatever at home, then then I'm probably that that's one of the ones that's going to be scratched out of music. Sure. Yeah, but p- pivoting it from live space into virtual space has obviously been an essential, and um, uh, and the events industry uh, has had to do that in order to survive. And um, you know, as as one of the industries within the old um, within a sector that's been massively hit, it's had to do it very very quickly. Um, so yes. Uh, we move. We move very, very quickly from from live events into virtual events. Luckily, we had we'd had uh, um, award winning experience of 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 creating uh, virtual events from sort of from two years previous. Um, but in order to answer your question again, we sort of we just go back to the strong thread that links this conversation, which is um, how do you make the virtual event as engaging as possible given that one of the major aspects of 
live events is the social engagement, mm. which you lot, which you lose, obviously. Well, you lose to a large degree. That fate, that the intimacy and the face-to-face contact is lost via Zoom communication teams, blue jeans, whatever. Um, and and although you can see somebody, you haven't got that that intimacy in terms of the proximity with which you're having that conversation. So where do you then create that? level of engagement that magnetism that's going to hold somebody's attention through the timeline of a virtual event as you would do in a live event and and um that's too much to ask anybody you have to reformat so so in terms of virtual events um they need to be structured in terms of chunks of snackable content you can't ask somebody to sit on their backside and look into a laptop for the whole day uh, as if they were actually sitting in a live event. It, it, it doesn't work. It's too much to ask anybody. They're going to drop off. They're going to become distracted. They'll they'll go somewhere else or they'll whatever or, or feign a, a Wi-Fi failure. <laughs> you know, um, what, you, what you've got to do is think about the layers of engagement that you have available to you to hold their concentration for a longer period of time. Um, and the virtual world is actually... Um, a world where if you deploy the technology in the right way, you can engage in a different way. So you're not you're not trying to replicate like for like because that's never going to work. You can't do that. You can't transition from a live event and and create a similar agenda, similar structure, etc. Merely by having people on a screen rather than actually on a stage in a room where all six hundred people are there. You've, you, you've got to think about things in in very different ways. But the one thing that you can do with a virtual event is you can create an environment that is completely and utterly unique in a way that you probably couldn't if we were stuck within the architecture of a conference room or a hotel. The virtual world enables you to place somebody, to immerse somebody at the very heart of the narrative that you are talking to them about. So if you want them to experience uh, the inside of a chocolate bar, and again, I'm sorry, it's just got that then there is an opportunity for you to do that in the virtual world. If you want people to actually experience being inside a um, uh, the pit at Formula One, then there is a way that you can build a virtual environment that can replicate that kind of experience. Now, if you can tell your story from inside the story, then what you're doing is you're adding another layer of creativity that can actually create a different level of engagement that means it's not just another zoom fatigue based conversation it's mean you're drawing people both visually and audibly into the story that you're actually telling to make that story and and its objective have more meaning for you as a participant as an observer as a delegate at a virtual event um, and mm. and if you think about things in that way then once again we can use uh, creativity and technology to actually start to uh, create a different but arguably equally interesting experience and again but you just you know it's about being brave and and embracing a different way of thinking about how you actually might crack a problem in a relevant but unexpected way for a brand so that the event still has that kind of magnetism that you may worry about losing because you haven't got the interaction and the social the social interaction that you would have at a live event. Really interesting. So, final question about 
COVID-19 before we get into our, our favorite questions. With the vaccine being being rolled out, some semblance of business as usual is on the horizon. Um, sort of early March, uh, they've, they've sort of said, when we do start to get back to business as usual, will you then re-pivot back to the older business model, the traditional business model, or will it be some kind of combination or hybrid model of this new virtual event proposition that you've pivoted to, and in addition to the uh, the older service offering that you had previously? I think the general mood, would, but the general consensus will be that hybrid will be the move before we go back to 100% live. And there's, I think, I think there's, and this again, this is a personal view, I think there is a question mark as to whether anything will ever be 100% live again. Mm. Interesting. The the importance of what we've been through is that we should not unlearn what we have learned. We should not go back to the world of previous because, you know, that's part of of a growing and an understanding and a learning process. There are lots of things that we have been through that we should not lose, but we should use in terms of enhancing our ability as an industry to actually tell stories, to create the engagement that we're here to do. And if you can learn from the, you know, the hard and and torturous situations that we've been through, and a lot of us have had to work very, very hard over a period of time to make sure the levels of relevance maintain. We still provide a brilliant service for our clients. Um, why would you want to lose the skill sets that you've de- developed and enhanced over that period of time? So there will be, clearly, we will go back to the hosting of larger live events. People will always want to do that. That's There's a there's a fundamental human need to get that that social interaction going. At the same time, I think a lot of businesses will potentially question whether or not flying everybody around the world to one venue at considerable expense is always necessary. And is that something, is it necessary and is it desirable? And if that is questioned, then there may well be situations where people still want to tune into the event, but will still do it from a virtual, on a virtual basis. And then that raises all sorts of interesting questions as to how do we make the live experience similar to the virtual experience so that the different audiences that are still participating in the singular one event actually share some kind of common understanding and comes some kind of common outtake from that event itself. And that's going to require some thinking and a skill set. Equally, the way we think about the world that we've created in terms of immersive virtual environments, how can we bring all of that knowledge to immersive live environments? Now we talk. Brands have been doing experiential marketing. Event companies have been creating you know experiences for ages. But what is it about the way we went about creating environmental design virtually that we can take as a valuable learning exercise to bring to the whole live event experience? And there are things I think that 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 we can usefully gel together to come up with a new way of doing things and that's a positive not a negative thing that's a, mm. that's 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 the creative mind having to problem solve to learn something to acquire a greater knowledge to apply that knowledge to a different way of doing things to moving forward and that's something that we should in the creative industries we have to celebrate what's been the greatest learning for you personally throughout 2020 i think you should never ever underplay or underestimate the potential your own potential 
or indeed the potential of the people around you in an organization. Because if you can align yourself around a common understanding of what the problem is and get people to believe that there is a way through and that if we all pull together, we can do that really, really quickly, then all of a sudden you have that real sense of alignment, dynamism, desire. And in a way, it goes back to the old, doesn't it? It goes back to the, the, the bit I was talking about, Sachi, before, which was that, you know, the precision, the passion and the perfection. If you can, if you can, if you can get everybody on board to move that way, then you can overcome. And that's, that's human potential. Uh, and that's team dynamics. That's not one person or any one individual being able to do that. It's, it's recognizing the skill sets that are brought together can do the most amazing things. Really fascinating. And I, and I don't mean, and that sounds really glib as a sort of an internal, eternal optimist. And those people know me will know that I am not an optimist all the time. Any stretch of imagination. <laughs> but but I, I think that that's the great positive that I think we should not lose from what has been a bloody difficult year. Oh, my God. You know. Yeah, really well said. Andrew, I'm... I could talk to you all day about this and there are a million questions that I didn't get a chance to get to. We're going to have to get you back on the show. Um, but let's let's get into everyone's favourite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So really excited to ask you some of them as well to find out who is the man behind the brand. Um, so first question I ask everybody, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. The, the biggest failure, I think, um, was gum not achieving what those of us that set it up really wanted to do we were we were ahead of the curve we were you know and it's easy to make these excuses now we were way ahead of the curve we in terms of the notion of of content and trying to push that forward and i and i i take that responsibility and i bear that responsibility hard because um you know as md md of the place we should have persevered we should have been more persuasive um because we were doing the right thing we were just doing it early Tell us about some of your early mentors. We talked about Paul Arden earlier and Dave Droger. Um, who else comes to mind when you think about who influenced the way that you think about creativity, advertising in your own career? I was very lucky, very, very, very lucky to get to Saatchi at the point in time that I did. And the likes of people like uh, uh, Paul Bainsfair um, were inspirational. Um, I was lucky enough to work with two brilliant account directors uh, early on uh, when I was a graduate there, um, Philip Wilson and Paul Holding, Paul Holding who now runs mm. Isabel, uh, uh, one of the loveliest men on the planet and, and a mm. genuinely good, good guy in terms of uh, nurturing young talent. Um, mm. So those, but, but you know what, I don't think influences necessarily should be restricted to your workplace. I think you should draw inspiration from all sorts. And in terms of passion, and again, this is going to age me, but and people at Touch will be overly familiar with my uh, resorting to or quoting this man. But um, Joe Strummer of the Clash, who, who always said, "No input, no output," uh, and that's one of my that's a that's a phrase I almost wear across my forehead. No, no input, no output. What you put in will ultimately determine what you what you put out, and that's everything down to the importance of the brief and the precision at the beginning will absolutely drive the quality of the output that comes at the other end, and that's life life is about input and so that was an inspiration you know what you put in you will get out that takes me back to a, a quote that i think i said to you at the top of the show which is um one that i go back to all the time nothing comes out of your brain that you don't first put in and that leads me on to my next question around books and um, we've had some 
amazing guests tell us about books that they've been influenced by. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What books have influenced the way that you think about media and advertising and in the world of marketing? What books do you keep going back to time and time again? There are two brilliant, brilliant books from a brilliant, brilliant man who those of us who worked with him will never forget. And I know you had the wonderful Dave Hyatt on the on, on the show earlier. And if anyone was going to be influenced by Paul, it was going to be him because he was very much Paul's protege. But mm. the two Arden books are brilliant. Mm. And especially, I think, um, whatever you think, think the opposite, because that's a, a, a brilliant book about challenging bias, challenging your own particular thinking to to address possibility. Uh, and that, again, goes back to that whole sense of the Saatchi culture of nothing is impossible, which is a which will live with me until my dying day. That sense of why, why do we think we can't do that? We can. We just need to work out a way to make it possible. That was a that that, that an organization could give me that was unbelievable. So, Paula, a storytelling. There's a brilliant book. Um, by a guy called John York, mm. who was a script writer, started as a script writer for um, EastEnders, I think, or Brookside, then EastEnders, mm. uh, and then had became head of storytelling, I think, at the BBC, a guy John York and called Into the Woods, which is a brilliant book about um, the art of storytelling mm. and how, as human beings, we have told stories in pretty much the similar, a similar way since the dawn of time. Uh, and it's a great, great way of understanding and and disseminating that kind of knowledge and working out how to tell great stories. And then I think, um, uh, you know, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell is a is a, just a, a a great book in Fantastic. terms of understanding the way the mind works and the the oftentimes brilliance of um, making snap decisions and etc. And just trusting trusting one's gut and trusting trusting one's heart couldn't agree more some great recommendations in terms of books other books though, sorry you, you can't get there but but books that are just brilliant books my bible um is catch 22 by joseph heller because it's so so right about the world in so many different ways it's not just a book about yeah. a war it's not just a book about society it's a book about the world for god's sakes you know it's the world it's the world we we live in um and it's and it's as relevant now as much as it was uh, when it was written. It's a book of sheer brilliance. So that book has been recommended to me three times now on the podcast and I've bought it and it's sitting on my shelf and I can see it every time I go home. And I haven't, for some reason, novels, I, I, I'm drawn to more business books and I need to get better at reading novels. Christmas break. To be honest with you. Immerse yourself. Christmas break. In, in yep. Immerse yourself <laughs> in the novel, please. And then let's have another yeah. chat about that because that could take Brilliant. that could take an hour as well. <laughs> okay, so so we talked about books. I know music is very, very close to your heart as well. What music or musicians have influenced the way that you think about life in your own personal journey? Oh, this this literally could this we could be here we could be here all day because it's one of those great ones, isn't it? You ask somebody their top ten best albums sure. and they change on a daily basis. Mine change almost on a minute basis. I think. Give us some of your favorites. I think the first album I ever bought, which is if anyone could stumble upon the right album at the right time, was London Calling by The Clash. It was um, an unbelievable piece of an unbelievable work. That's sure. still run that. Um, in terms of someone, God bless him. He's way off beam now. It's a great shame, but but the Smiths, the Queen is Dead, was an absolute work of art. 
and, and you get up to you get up to the lights of which Radiohead album would you would you particularly <laughs> choose? And you right, know, but yeah. uh, uh, you know, so classic. Uh, you know, those are those are brilliant brilliant bits of work that you can just lose yourself in and do not age at all. That's a separate podcast all by itself it is uh we'll have to create a separate <laughs> one and invite you back on the show uh last couple of questions and then i'll let you go what advice would you give to a young person or millennial that comes to you and says that they want to start their career in an advertising agency or a marketing agency decide where you want to go i mean research again this is all my input uh really really work out where you want to go and then do not take no for an answer nothing is impossible if you show the right level of creativity and the right level of tenacity and desire and intelligence wanting to get somewhere you will you will in, in, invariably in, in, and eventually you will succeed do not take no for an answer and do your damnedest to try and work with the best early on it's the most valuable thing i can tell anybody about about their career because um you know, if if I'm the product of anything, it is it is the it is the product of a great another great quote, uh, another one from Morrissey, I think, which was talent borrows, genius steals, and um, mm. a, a, and steal as much as you possibly can from those greater minds than your own. That's it. And in my case, there have been many, many, many out there. <laughs> in terms of greater minds, I meant you know. So uh, so so you know, then do that, and don't take no for an answer. Just keep going. Nothing is impossible. And my final question, Andrew, what is it you know about the world of brands, agencies and advertising today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? They all come from the same essence. They all come from the same DNA. And it's about your ability to tell a story in a way that genuinely captivates and moves your audience. And if you can understand the best practice and best principles of telling those stories, then you're pretty well set for success really fascinating andrew thank you so much for doing this it's been a great pleasure we have been speaking with andrew wilkie he is currently a board director at touch associates if you enjoy this conversation then head over to apple Podcasts, where you can listen to over a hundred such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in advertising sales and marketing thank you for your feedback and suggestions on linkedin and email write to me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Christoph Blaschek is our editor slash booker. Marian Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Dealmasters.